Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor, the Doctor, and the Doctor, along with Joe and the boys from Unit in the first story of Season 10, The Three Doctors. We'll be discussing the Doctors, the companions, and the villains, and give you our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. But before we start, though, I must apologize to one of our uh, friends of the show and long-time listener, Paul, from the Half Measures podcast, who apparently nearly died listening to last week's episode. <laughs> Time Travelling Team claims no responsibility whatsoever for accidents that may happen while listening to the podcast. That's Paul's own fault. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but I, when I got to the thing where I was describing the Tom Tit machine, apparently he st- uh, laughed and nearly slipped on the road. Yeah, he, he told me about this. We claim zero responsibility for any accidents that may incur while you're listening to the podcast. Oh, cool. So, though, on to the story recap. Episode 1. At Minsbridge Wildlife Sanctuary, one of the wardens comes across a trapped weather balloon with a strange orange box attached to it. The box has the name of a Dr. Tyler written on it, and the warden has his wife call the owner to retrieve it whilst he keeps an eye on it. Later, as Dr. Tyler is making his way to the landing spot, the warden, whose name is Alice, vanishes in a flash of light when he gets too near the box. Tyler calls out for him, having seen him as he approached, but when he hears no response, he calls through to Unit. Later at the doctor's lab at Unit HQ, Tyler explains what he saw to the doctor and the brigadier, who say that they will help. Joe asks what the box is for, and Tyler says that it is for research into cosmic rays. Tyler tells him that he had intended to contact the unit anyway due to the strange readings that they had been receiving. He shows them readouts and says that something was detected travelling faster than light and seems to be on a direct course for Earth. The doctor tells Tyler to develop the latest readings from the box whilst he and Joe go to where Alice disappeared. Tyler gets to work, leaving the brigadier bemused that he seems to feel at home in a top secret location. When he develops the image plates from the box though, he notices what appears to be a face in the image. He goes to open the box fully, but he too disappears enough to a flash of light. A strange multicoloured translucent blob then appears from out of the box and makes its way out of the lab. At the wildlife sanctuary, Joe and the doctor examine the area that the balloon landed in and are a bit taken aback by the attitude of Mrs. Alice, who says that her husband is prone to being gone for long stretches of time. After she goes, the doctor confides to Joe that the disappearance is more important than he let on. Meanwhile, the brigadier returns to the lab and finds Tyler missing and orders Benton to have the base searched. The doctor and Joe arrive back to go and meet Tyler, but the strange blob suddenly appears from a drain and the doctor tells Joe to stay away from it. The blob begins to grow in size and the doctor tells her to run as the blob causes Bessie to disappear as well. They then make their way to the lab where Benton is reporting the flash from Bessie's disappearance to the brigadier, as well as the fact that no one can find Tyler. The doctor tells Benton to organise men to guard all the drains in the base and he examines the image that Tyler left out. He reveals to Joe and the Brigadier that the image is of Alice. The Brigadier tells him about coming back to find Tyler missing and the box open. The doctor uses an instrument that he had used at the wildlife sanctuary to scan the area and the device acts like a Geiger counter and he tells the Brigadier to continue his story. The Brigadier says that he was bringing in reports from other global deep space research installations and they all report the same thing that the entity coming towards Earth scanned it and now it seems to be making its way towards the base. They tell him about the blob that they saw outside and Joe says that it seems to be hunting specifically for the Doctor. 
The doctor agrees, saying Alice's disappearance was an accident, whilst Tyler's disappearance in the lab and Betty's disappearance was due to their connection to him. The brigadier asks how they can find it, but the doctor says that they can only wait for it to find them. Outside, several strange, bulbous, clawed creatures appear from thin air and begin to approach the HQ. Benton organises the defence of the base, but the creatures don't seem to be affected by the unit's troops' weapons. The brigadier orders a complete evacuation and tells Benton to meet him in his office. The doctor asks Joe to leave for her own safety, saying that the blob won't come for her, but she refuses. Benton climbs in through the lab window and the doctor tells him to take Joe away, but before he can do anything, the blob suddenly appears, forcing them into the TARDIS. Benton is astounded by what he sees, but says it seems pretty redundant to comment on the change in size from the outside. The doctor tries to take off, but the power console won't activate, and so he reluctantly sends an SOS to the Time Lords. The doctor turns on the view screen to keep watching the blob as it wreaks havoc in the lab. On the Time Lord home planet, the President and the Chancellor are shown that the blob is connected to a black hole via an energy beam of some type. The President says that they are dealing with a foe equal to them, and it exists within a universe of antimatter. The Chancellor says they need to send help to the Doctor, but the President says that he can spare no one, as everyone is needed to combat the energy drain by the black hole. Instead, the President says he would have to break the first law of time and take a previous version of the Doctor out of his time stream to help his current self. Back in the TARDIS, the console activates but nothing happens. As the Doctor goes to check it, he spots a recorder on top of it. Suddenly, his previous incarnation appears and takes it off him. He comments on his dislike for the changes that his current self has made to the console room before turning his attention to the view screen which shows the blob outside. Benton enthusiastically greets the other Doctor and they reminisce about the invasion of the Cybermen. Joe asks the current Doctor who he is, which causes the two Doctors to argue as to which of them is the Doctor. Benton confirms that they are in fact the same person, and the second Doctor explains how he is there. The current Doctor is less than pleased, but their attention is drawn to the view screen when they hear the sounds of gunfire as the Brigadier and his men try to drive off the blob, but to no avail. The two Doctors decide to share a mental link so as to bring the second version up to speed. He then plays his recorder as he contemplates the information he received, which only serves to annoy his current self, and they begin to bicker. Their arguing is monitored by the Time Lord President, who decides to rein them in by using the last reserves of temporal energy available to send back the earliest version of the Doctor. However, he is not able to fully materialise and is trapped in a time eddy in the time vortex. He appears on the view screen and cuts into the argument, expressing his displeasure at his future selves, whom he refers to as a dandy and a clown. He informs him that the blob outside is actually a time bridge and says that they will need to cross it to find its source. He suddenly fades from sight again and the second Doctor flips a coin to decide of them which of them will go, with the third Doctor losing the toss. He goes outside, but Joe follows him, and before he can send her back inside, the blob causes them both to disappear. Episode 2 The second Doctor calls Benton back in as he tries to go outside to rescue the third Doctor and Joe. He tells the anxious sergeant that whoever is after his future self won't merely want to kill him, and so he and Joe have most likely been transported somewhere. They take a look at the external view screen and they see the blob has become much more passive. Benton says this is their chance to destroy it, but the second doctor says that they should try a more subtle approach and he leads Benton out of the TARDIS. The brigadier arrives with the second doctor tells him to stay back as the blob reacts to whenever they get too close to it. The brigadier is astounded to see the earlier version of the doctor and flusteredly states that the doctor's tampering with the TARDIS has clearly sent Joe somewhere as well as reverted his appearance. He ignores Benton's interruptions to confirm the second doctor's story and tells the second doctor to bring Joe back and to find a way to contain the blob. He suggests contacting the Time Lords for help, but the second doctor says that they are preoccupied and it is up to him and his other selves to solve the problem. 
Meanwhile, on the time Lord Home Planet, the Chancellor orders the energy transfer to the Doctor's time stream to be diverted back to combating the black hole. But the President refuses, saying that the Doctor is the only one who can help them. He reveals that the third Doctor has been transported into the black hole, and the Chancellor says that they are more than likely dead. The third Doctor and Joe wake up in a stony valley, and he assures her that they are not dead. He suggests that they look around and they head off down the valley, unaware that they are being observed by one of the bulbous creatures. As they make their way through the valley, they come across bits and pieces from the lab and its equipment that the blob transported away. They also see Bessie and drive further into the valley and stop when they notice a pair of footprints on the ground. They exit Bessie to see where they lead to, and after they go, Alice appears from behind a rocky outcrop. Back in the doctor's lab, the second doctor explains to the brigadier that his other self and Joe are in a universe made of antimatter. The brigadier says that he thought that matter and antimatter couldn't exist in the same space, and the second doctor confirms it and says that whoever sent the blob is a highly intelligent foe. The Brigadier then leaves to contact Eunice Supreme HQ in Geneva, and Benton apologises for his attitude, saying that the stress must be getting to him. The Second Doctor then says that they need to keep the blob distracted and looks for a television set. The Brigadier returns and says that the World Security Council is waiting for an update on the situation from the Third Doctor. The Second Doctor asks if it will be confusing for them to see him, and the Brigadier says that he has told them that he is the Third Doctor's assistant. The second doctor is appalled at the idea, but the brigadier says the truth would be too confusing and tells him to follow him. The second doctor says that they haven't tested the containment device he has just created, and the brigadier orders Benton to keep an eye on the blob for the time being. The second doctor tells him how to use the containment device, and after they leave, the blob starts to advance on Benton, who uses the containment device, but to no avail. He anxiously calls for the second doctor to come back, and he runs back in with the brigadier. He tells him the containment device didn't work, and the second doctor tells him to get into the TARDIS. Like Benton, the Brigadier is amazed at the interior of the TARDIS and assumes it to be an illusion, built with unit funds. Before the Second Doctor can explain, he is informed by Benton of the Blob's actions in the lab, but he says that all they can do is wait and think what to do next. The Brigadier, growing increasingly frustrated with the events, demands to be let out, but he is ignored by the Second Doctor, who realises that the machine didn't work because he forgot that the Blob is made of antimatter and therefore gained power from it instead of being subdued by it. The second doctor asks for his recorder and the brigadier snaps that he needs to be with his men and not looking for an instrument. The second doctor says that the brigadier would never make it out of the lab alive and says he needs to think and music helps him think best so he goes back to looking for his recorder. The brigadier then tries the radio out for an update but the second doctor says that it won't work due to the TARDIS's protective force field. He then takes the radio and starts tinkering with it to boost the signal. Benton also agrees that they are wasting time, but the second doctor says that he needn't worry about the others, as he endlessly states that they are having a more interesting time. Back in the antimatter universe, the third doctor and Joe come across Tyler as he is working out how he got there. The third doctor tells him about the nature of their present location, and they both explain to a confused Joe how it should be impossible to be there. Unbeknownst to them, they are being observed through a viewscreen by an armoured figure, delighted to have a Time Lord within his grasp and he orders one of the bulbous creatures to bring them to him. It and several others surround the trio and escort them to an underground structure. Tyler says that they should try and make a break for it, but the third doctor says that the only way to get back to their own world is to meet the person who brought them through the antimatter universe in the first place. Tyler tries to convince Joe to go with him, but says that she will stay with the third doctor. Tyler says that he will follow the third doctor's lead, but it is a ruse and he dashes away, pursued by a pair of the bulbous creatures. The Third Doctor and Joe ponder the situation, and Joe wonders if the Third Doctor is right about whether or not their abductor will try to kill them. The Third Doctor says that their captor is a very intelligent creature, and it therefore cannot possibly be cruel. Tyler is suddenly thrown back into them, and he resigns himself to being a prisoner. 
They are led down a tunnel and the third doctor explains that they have been converted into antimatter, hence their existence, but Tyler remains dubious as they are led towards their captor. Meanwhile, the second doctor's efforts prove successful and the brigadier is able to contact one of his men, who informs him that the bulbous creatures are currently stationary outside the HQ. The brigadier orders him and the rest of his men to maintain a safe distance from the base. Benton then draws her attention to the view screen, where the first doctor appears again. He tells him that the time lords are growing weaker and that he and the third doctor need to act fast. He tells the second doctor to shut off the protective force field and after some initial confusion, the second doctor agrees as the first doctor fades back into the time vortex, leaving the brigadier to ask who that was, but is told that he wouldn't believe the answer. Despite the brigadier and Benton's protest, the, the second doctor turns off the force field and the entire HQ, as well as the bulbous creatures, suddenly vanish, leaving the unit troops outside stunned. Episode 3 The third doctor, Joe and Tyler, are brought into an ornate chamber where they meet the armoured figure who introduces himself as Omega, one of the legendary founders of Time Lord civilization. The third doctor is stunned by this as he and his people believed Omega was destroyed millennia ago. Omega tells the creatures to take Joe and Tyler away and they are placed inside a cell, the entrance of which disappears after they go inside it. Omega tells the third doctor that without his contributions, then the Time Lords would not have mastered time travel, but he was abandoned by them inside the antimatter universe. The third doctor tells him that he was recorded as lost and is considered a hero on their home planet, but Omega insists that he was betrayed and mocks the doctor's hero worship, claiming that he should be revered as a god instead. The third doctor asks how he survived, and Omega says that he did it through sheer willpower, which is also how he gained mastery of the antimatter lifeforms that attacked the unit base. The third doctor asks what he is needed for, and Omega says that he needs his help to finish off the Time Lords once and for all. He tells him that if he refuses, then he will destroy him as well as Joe and Tyler. An alert comes true, and Omega orders the bulbous creatures to investigate the new arrivals. In the TARDIS, the Brigadier demands to be let out, and the second doctor reluctantly lets them out. The Brigadier goes to take a look around, and when he opens one of the exit doors, he is greeted to the site of an, the antimatter planet. He storms back to the lab and begins to berate the second doctor for transporting the base away, as it could be seen as an invasion of whatever country they are in, leading to an international repercussion. Benton tries to break it to him that they have been transported to another universe, but he brushes the claim off. He tells him to wait there whilst he goes to find a local phone to contact the authorities to alert them to their presence there. The second doctor is incredulous at his attitude, and Benton resignedly says that they had better follow him. The second doctor tries to go back for his recorder, but a pair of the bulbous creatures suddenly appear and corner him and Benton. Meanwhile, as the brigadier is searching the area for a phone, he encounters Alice, who tells him about seeing the third doctor and Joe being captured along with Tyler. Before he can give the brigadier any more information, they are forced to take cover as the bulbous creatures lead the second doctor and Benton into Omega's base. Alice asks what they should do, and the brigadier tells him that they will need to reconnoitre the area before attempting a rescue. Inside Omega's chamber, the third doctor begs him to stop his plan and reverse the energy flow before the universe is destroyed. He says that he could reclaim his place on the Time Lord High Council, but Omega says that he only seeks absolute power now. The second doctor and Benton are brought into the chamber, and the third doctor claims that they are just innocent bystanders. However, Omega claims that the Blob was sent to retrieve a Time Lord, and he realises who the second doctor is. He views the breaking of the first law of time as further evidence of the Time Lord's attempts to kill him, and he orders them all to be taken away so he can consider their fate. In the cell, the two doctors bicker again as the third doctor blames the second doctor for ruining his attempt to make peace with Omega. 
Joe and Benton interrupt and remind them that they're meant to be working together and they apologise before discussing Omega's conflicting motivations of revenge and freedom from the antimatter universe. Tyler interrupts as he is confused as to what's going on and after Joe's prompting, the second doctor explains their current situation. He tells them that they are in proximity to a singularity, a point in space-time that can only exist within a black hole, and Omega is using it to attack their universe. They tell them of how Omega helped crack the secret of time travel and his current mistaken belief of his betrayal by the Time Lords. Joe reminds him that Omega is not as all-powerful as he claims, otherwise he wouldn't have needed a Time Lord to help him. She asks if their sonic screwdriver can help get them out of the cell, but the third doctor states that it will not work in the antimatter universe. She then suggests that their combined willpower might be able to manipulate their environment the same way that Omega's does. They establish their mental link again and manage to create a door in the wall and then make their way to the singularity chamber. They tell the others to stay behind, but they follow on after them instead. However, they are forced to take a detour as they are nearly caught by a patrolling bulbous creature. The two doctors enter the singularity chamber, but they are caught by Omega. They once again give him the ultimatum of surrendering to the Time Lords, or they will use their newly established mental link to destroy him. Omega refuses their ultimatum, and then uses his own mental power to break their link and face the third doctor in a mental duel in the dark side of his mind. Outside, Joe and Benton eventually manage to make their way to the main entrance where they find the Brigadier and Alice trying to get in. The Quintet then flee the area as several of the bulbous creatures open fire and follow after them. Meanwhile, the Time Lord President informs the First Doctor that they are sending him into the black hole as well as only the mental power of him and his two other selves can defeat Omega. In their mental duel, the Third Doctor wrestles with a gargoyle-like manifestation of Omega's dark side. They are evenly matched at first, but Omega gains the upper hand and begins to strangle the Third Doctor. Episode 4 The Second Doctor calls out to Omega and says that if the Third Doctor dies then he will never be able to get free from the antimatter universe. Omega releases the third doctor and warns him and the others not to defy him anymore, saying that Joe and the men have managed to escape. He confirms their theory that it is through sheer willpower that he is able to create anything, and the second doctor annoys him by repeatedly asking him to create a replacement recorder. The third doctor intervenes, but the second doctor whispers that he is deliberately provoking Omega to see the extent of his control on their surroundings, noting that the angrier he gets, the more his control slips. The third doctor warns him to be careful, and they go back to asking what Omega wants them to do. He reveals that without his will to maintain the singularity, the world he created and everything with it would be destroyed, and he would be trapped forever. He says that he intends for the doctor to take his place so that he may escape. The two doctors silently confer amongst themselves, and they agree to help him. He says that they will need to take off his armour and wear it themselves, as the power of the singularity has a minutely corrosive effect, but prolonged exposure makes it dangerous. They take off his helmet and are shocked to see that his corporeal form has completely disappeared. They tell him that the only reason he exists is because his willpower has kept him alive within his armour. Omega wails in despair at his predicament and he violently declares that he will destroy everything as the chamber begins to shake. The two doctors flee as the ancient Time Lord insanely repeats that he will destroy everything. They rush outside but find Bessie missing and the second doctor points out the tracks of the car are headed back to the unit HQ. Meanwhile, Joe and the others arrive back at the unit HQ, all the while being pursued by the bulbous creatures. They hurry inside but find the TARDIS locked, and the Brigadier angrily tells everyone to be quiet as he decides the best way to defend the base. Benton points out the sounds of explosions coming from outside, and Joe says that it must be the two doctors, and they hurry to let them in. The second doctor rushes to open the TARDIS, and everyone pours into it, with the Brigadier going last as he's confused to see the two versions of the doctor together. 
They then reactivate the protective force field, unaware that Omega is watching them through a view screen as he declares that he will destroy their universe. The two doctors state that they are now besieged and Benton urges them to do something to defeat Omega, pointing out that they should be twice as effective. The second doctor begins to explain just how powerful Omega is when an alarm comes from the power console and you see the first doctor appear on the view screen. He tells them that they need to hurry as his connection to them is growing weaker and they quickly establish a mental link between the three of them. They decide on a course of action and the first doctor breaks the connection to report back to the Time Lords. The other two doctors begin to strip the force field components from the power console and Joe explains to the brigadier who the first doctor is. The second doctor finds his recorder but is despondent to see that it is part of the force field generator and the third doctor impatiently says that he will get him another one as they need to use it for their plan. The third doctor then calls Omega and offers to give him the force field in exchange for him releasing his grip on the TARDIS's flight controls, assuring him that they do not intend to deceive him. Omega agrees, and before they use the TARDIS to go to his chamber, the third doctor tells everyone to do exactly as he tells them. The TARDIS lands in Omega's chamber, and the third doctor says that he can help get him free of the antimatter universe in exchange for letting the others go free back to their own universe. Omega states that he knows that they can't free him, but offers instead to let the others go and spare the universe if both doctors agree to stay in exile with him. The third doctor agrees, and when Joe objects, he reminds her of her agreement to do as he says. Reluctant to leave him as well, the brigadier asks how they will get back, and the third doctor tells him that they will need to walk into the singularity. Tyler goes first after Aldous refuses, but the brigadier sends him through after they see Tyler successfully disappear. Benton goes next, after saying Joe should go instead of him, but the Brigadier orders him true. Joe refuses to leave the third Doctor, but he asks for her to trust him, and she reluctantly goes true. The Brigadier then gives both Doctors a sad salute before stepping through himself. Omega comes back and says that they are all trapped together, but the second Doctor again claims that they can free him, and offers him the force field generator. When Omega refuses, they try to mentally coerce him, but it fails, and he slaps it to the ground. The second Doctor tells his future self to run, and they both rush back into the TARDIS, and then the force field generator explodes in a dazzling flash of light. On the Time Lord planet, energy levels are restored as they see a new star appear in the black hole. Back in Unit HQ, the Brigadier, Benton, Joe and Tyler reappear, with Aldous reappearing back at the Wildlife Sanctuary. Joe laments the loss of the Doctors, and the Brigadier expresses his admiration for both of them. Suddenly, the TARDIS appears and both Doctors tumble out and exchange joyful greetings with the others. They explain that due to the fact that the recorder fell into the force field generator, it wasn't converted to antimatter by Omega like they were. When it collided with the antimatter, it caused an implosion that converted the black hole into a supernova, but the second Doctor again laments the loss of his instrument. They hear a voice from inside the TARDIS and they see the first Doctor on the view screen. The trio exchange congratulations, but the first doctor says that he and the second doctor need to go back to their own time streams, but smugly states that he worries for their futures without him. The second doctor departs and exchanges a teasing farewell with his future self. The brigadier tells Benton that they will need to do a full stock take of the base, but doesn't give an answer when Benton asks how they will explain any disappearances. Tyler also departs, and after he leaves, the doctor laments the fact that Omega is gone, but Joe reminds him that the universe was at stake. Suddenly, a new dematerialization circuit appears, and the Doctor reveals that his knowledge of the inner workings of the TARDIS has been restored. He then tells a worried Joe that he won't be able to leave for a while as he needs to build a new force field generator. Meanwhile, Alice returns home, and after being questioned by his wife as to his absence, he tells her that she wouldn't believe him and asks if dinner is ready. End of the story.
Very good. Except it was supper. Still very good. Ah, well, it, God damn it. Like, they say supper. See, this is the thing now, right? She, he missed dinner. Dinner is lunch. Supper is supper. Yes, but see, I... All right, this is kind of weird, right? So my cousins would, um, mm. ha- would have their dinner, like, because they mostly grew up on the farm. They would have their dinner at one o'clock. Like, yeah. you know, one o'clock, two o'clock. Whereas me, I, because my mom would work late, we would have our dinner at, like, seven. So seven, which is supper time for most people, is dinner for me. So that's why I equate the two things together. Yeah, I'm just saying that in the episode. <laughs> well, they're wrong, okay? It was supper. Because <laughs> she had said he missed his dinner, which to you and me means he lunch. missed his lunch. <laughs> he missed food and he's now late for other food and he's asking he is hungry. <laughs> So, localization of dinner time terminology aside, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go over to the trivia spot. So, as this is a very monumentous event within the history of the show that we both love, yes. what trivia do you have for us on it? Cool. So, the air date for the story, 30th of December 1972 to 20th of January 1973. Writers are Bob Baker and Dave Martin, both of whom we have seen before uh, they previously worked together on the cause of axos and the mutants and we'll see their work together again in the suntaran experiment the hand of fear the invisible enemy underworld the armageddon factor and again as said before bob also wrote nightmare of eden the director of the story is lenny main this is the second of four stories directed by lenny we previously saw his work in the curse of peladon and we'll see his work again in the monster of peladon and then in the hand of fear so it, this is interesting because from our perspective, we have two writers whose work we considered meh and a director whose work we loved. Yes. So it'll be interesting to see how this balances out. Yeah. Now, bearing in mind, we have two writers whose work so far we yes. consider meh. We do have yeah. a little bit of future knowledge. Yes, I know. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> this story had the working title of The Black Hole. To the point, really. Yeah. Um... <laughs> And it was intended to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Doctor Who. This is the start of season 10. Mm-hmm. It was just intended to commemorate the 10th anniversary. The interesting thing, though, is that 10 years to the date would actually have been during the hiatus between seasons 10 and 11. Mm-hmm. And they're doing this at the beginning of season 10. Yeah. So... That kind of differs from the way that they do it now in the modern show, where they try mm. to have it align much more with the actual anniversary date. Mm. Um, but here it was just, you know, season 10 is the 10th year. Let's do something big for the kickoff. Well, like, I so, see, in a sense, they managed to get away with it for the modern because obviously there was nothing on during the 40th. Mm. So then for the 50th, it was just an event. Yeah. It wasn't part of a regular season run. Yeah. So, yeah. Ranging to see what they do for the sixties. Mm-hmm. So this serial, like you said, big monumental event in terms of Doctor Who. Number of firsts. Our first multi-doctor story. Asterix, we did see in a story previously two versions of the same Doctor. This is not the same. Mm-hmm. So first multi-doctor story, establishing the idea of the Doctor being able to meet and interact with his previous incarnations. Yes. Which we're told here breaks the first law of time. Mm-hmm. 
note to future doctors apparently are doing this all over the gaff, but however. It also marks the return of William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton to the roles of the first and second doctor, respectively, for the first time. It's the first time both of those doctors were seen on screen in colour. Now, an interesting thing is, I don't know about you, but when I was watching and we had the first doctor interacting with the Time Lords, mm-hmm. he was in black and white. There was one scene there, yeah, where he's in, there's a one or two scenes where he's in black and white. Uh, it was just that one scene where it jumped out at me that he was in black and white. But I wonder if it was just that well, over the years, whatever. I, I actually don't know because one t- as the power drain goes on throughout the story, the lights and a lot of the color fades from the time. Oh, maybe that room. was it. So that's maybe what it could be. Maybe that was it. Because another thing is that like, this is actually the first story for either Doctor, the first or second, where the original recordings were preserved. Because hmm. all of the other ones, they were taken from telecasts, which are different versions of the tapes. It was actually the original recordings were preserved. This is the first time that the Brig and Benton enter the TARDIS. And it's the first time, apparently, that the phrase, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, is uttered. And it's the Doctor suggesting something that Benton should have said. <laughs> I love his... Like, John Levine sells that scene so well. He's just looking up road. He's just like, it's a big... <laughs> seems kind of pointless, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> So I mentioned last week that we got a new TARDIS last week. Mm-hmm. And I gave it a spoiler. It wasn't going to last for long. It did not see through to this week. <laughs> that particular weird design that I didn't like, Barry Letts also didn't like it, lasted for one story, which was the end of season nine. The reason was that it got warped while in storage between seasons nine and ten. So they had to redesign it again. And this was redesigned by Roger Limington. And I'm glad because I didn't like the one we saw last week. I thought it was a bit crap. Yeah, we I wasn't a big fan of it. The one thing I'd say on this one, though, is that the roof seems a bit low. Mm. Like, you can see the ceiling and, like, the roundels obviously don't continue up. So it's just like, okay, maybe you should raise that ever so slightly. Mm. So this is also the first appearance of Omega. Or Omega, depending on your pronunciation of that word. They say Omega. Yeah. Which seems weird in my head. Originally, his name was supposed to be Om. Which is a flip of who. So if you flip Doctor Who, if you flip who and turn it upside down. But it looks you, like Om. O-H-M. Only if you capitalise it, though. Yeah. It was designed to be done in capital <laughs> letters. <laughs> Otherwise, it's... Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ohm was later used as the name of an ancient Gallifreyan god apparently in a novel The Infinity Doctors through this story in a way Patrick Troughton and William Hartnell also appear in the Sarah Jane adventures because when there's flashbacks of Joe's time with the Doctor it flashes back to this story uh... so they use footage from this in that episode of Sarah Jane Adventures, Death of the Doctor. So technically, they appeared of a sort. This is this is like when Paul asked us the fucking question of which doctors never encountered the master. And we co- with confidence said one and two, forgetting that they fucking met him in like the five doctors special. Yeah. Like, well, ah, that, that's bollocks. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here we get to see our doctors interact for the most part, and we'll get to um, Bill's circumstance mm. a little bit later. But Terence Dix was asked, how did Patrick and John get on? And his reply was, not at all. The two have had, pardon, very different acting styles. Troughton was more of a fan of ad-libbing, kind of goofing, you know, finding what fit naturally in the scene. Whereas John was very much, this is the script. And apparently at one point, John questioned Patrick on one of his ad-libs. And Patrick said, instead of worrying about what I'm going to say, worry about what you're going to say. Mm. <laughs> um, however, I mean, it's it's a key thing. I can't remember... No, I don't know what it was. I was having a conversation with some of the guys from the Mission Log Patreon group that they were talking about Stargate issue one. Mm-hmm. And the episode Ergo. Yes. And how a lot of that was ad-libbed. <laughs> well, like, that's the thing. Like, Dom DeLuise, like, who played Ergo, is a force of comedic nature. So like yeah. having, having a plan around him, I can imagine, would not work well. Yeah, so one of the Pauls that interact with the Mission Log was saying that like with some actors, it's very difficult to work with another actor if there's someone who ad-libs, because often actors will pick up on the last word of a sentence, and that's their cue, that's their trigger mm-hmm. for what they're meant to do next. If that last word of the sentence never comes, yeah, it can kind of mess you up. And he was mentioning that like Robert Picardo kind of had issues with that because that was kind of his way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um. So I imagine if that's the way John learned his lines, that would probably get quite frustrating. Yeah. You know, if you're expecting him to say something and he's saying something else. They apparently also quarreled because John had a habit of moving Omega slightly so he could get better camera angles for himself. Which Patrick objected to because he thought that the camera should be focusing on the monster. Hmm. Uh, Apparently, this did sort of, you know, resolve itself over time. It was a working issue not a personality issue overall and they actually became really good friends and they'd sort of you know play up the rivalry at conventions and stuff but it did mean that when they appeared in the five doctors terence deliberately wrote in the script they didn't have a scene together until everyone came together at the end which they were both kind of disappointed because they were like why don't we have any scenes together you didn't work well together you're not (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of sad you think about it it is like because you see them like you know you footage and photos, fo- photos, photos of them at conventions. Like there's one there where like John is chasing Patrick around with a fucking picture of water. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, from a production standpoint, you know, me and Vicky, hmm. great friends, shouldn't RP together. Yeah, I imagine it's a bit like that. Yeah. And perhaps in that instance, Terrence was like, look, you guys get along great and that's fine. But we can't have your shenanigans yeah. on set. But it's just it's just not going to work. Do you know? So Nicholas Courtney did some improv on his own. Mm. So the Brigadier goes through a number of different places where he thinks the antimatter world actually is. He thinks that the Doctor has just somehow moved a room from Unit HQ to another part of the planet. And one of the places that he suggested is Cromer, and that was improvised by Nick. He was just listing off places. And that's one that he picked. Uh, more improv. Uh, seems a bit weird to hear the doctor refer to Omega as a bloke. Yeah. 
Uh, that was Patrick riffing off John Levine's line earlier in the scene. <laughs> the original script ended with the first mention of Metabilis. Uh, first mention of Metabilis 3, though originally it was scripted as 4. Because um, the Doctor was going to invite Joe on a trip to see the planet. And this would have set up the story arc that would weave its way through the season and actually into next season a little bit. Due to time constraints, though, the line was cut out. But Terence does bring it back in in the novelization. Terence Dix includes it back in there. So more people who were meant to be in the story but weren't. Jamie was meant to be there and have Mm. a bit of a romance with Joe. Ooh. But Fraser was busy with Emmerdale, and so his lines were given to Benton. And as cool as it would have been to see Jamie interacting with Joe, hmm. I kind of prefer that it was Benton who got to do all that. Yeah. Like, they don't do a romance no. with Joe for Benton, but I prefer that it was Benton that got to have that experience. Personally speaking, nothing, nothing against Jamie as a character. N- now, that, now that you say it, like, there's, a, uh, we, there's a great moment where, like, Benton is looking at the blob and he's like there with a thing of chewing gum and he just goes like right now you're not going to give me any trouble are you? I can actually see that being a Jamie line. Yeah Yeah. except Jamie wouldn't have been chewing gum and from the rapper at it. No pissed it off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another person considered to return was actually going to be Zoe so again to give the second doctor a companion Hmm. as such but John apparently felt that there were too many returning characters and that would be distracting which I guess, you know, like, because the second Doctor already had that relationship with the Brig, and mm. the second Doctor didn't really work very closely with Benton, but they can, yeah, you know, make that association because Benton was in that, that and serial. Th- again, that's another really good moment where he's like, Corporal Benton, actually it's Sergeant Benton now, sir, and it's like a very nice yeah. moment between the two. If the, if the story had been six episodes, yeah, ha- it, then yeah, having yeah. someone come back with... Uh, uh, Patrick would have been probably but within four yeah you're kind of pushing it yeah so on to the cast that we do have returning as the first doctor we have William Hartnell yay this is his last appearance as the first doctor and as such it is his only multi-doctor outing um, we've mentioned before that Bill had been suffering from I'm going to try and pronounce it right arteriosclerosis yep you got it in one and it was having a massive debilitating effect on his life um and he was really going into decline at this point um it's well documented that his wife was very protective of him Mm -hmm. understandably and while bill really wanted to be a part of it she was the one who kind of pushed for the role to be less physically demanding out of concern for his health. So that's why it was limited to the pre-recorded appearances on the video screens. So he filmed them at Ealing um, and he had cue cards to help him with his lines. And towards the end, you can see that he often looks to the right, which I'm guessing is where the cue cards were. He doesn't do it for the first few episodes, but I think in the last episode, he's possibly getting a bit tired. And you can see him kind of looking to the right a lot. Although, you know, maybe he's looking at something else. Bill passed away only two years after this went out. There's uh, 
during for the 40th anniversary which was just i think a year or two before it actually the before the show mm. entered the revival era been. um there was like some really good uh interviews done with guys like barry letts and uh Philip Hinchcliffe and uh, Terence Dix and a load of other people and cast and crew members. And Barry apparently, uh, Barry tells the story that he called to, like he called you on the phone to Bill's house. And he's and Bill apparently said, yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to do it. Let me know when you need me. Hmm. So then Bill's wife later said, you got him on a good day. Yeah. Be- so like apparently it's like he was really... Uh, you know, because obviously there was the whole thing of the Billy Flubs, you know, like, you know, mm. messing up his lines. Apparently it was also just affecting his memory in general. So she really, like, that's where, like, if if she hadn't been around, it could have been a very different scenario. Like, and he could have rocked up and he could have had a much different experience. You know? Yeah, and I love the fact that, like, you know, obviously we don't know what their personal relationship was like, but I love the fact that she's so protective of him. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and she didn't want to deny him the experience. You know, a does she have that right? No, probably not. But that she, because again, and I do remember interviews with Barry where Barry was saying like she kind of came to him and was like, "Look, he would have agreed to anything. Like, (laughs) he can't do it. He physically can't do it. You know, he can't be acting on set all day every day." And I love the fact that they. They could have so easily just not had him be in it. Mm-hmm. And given what you and I have learned through watching his stories, how much he loved the character and how much he loved being on the show, mm-hmm. I think that would have broke his heart. Yeah. If they did a multi-doctor story and didn't have him in it. So I'm so happy they found a way to make that work. Yeah, absolutely. Even if he didn't get to be on set with everybody else or whatever, he still got to see it on telly and, you know, the kids got to see it on telly and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like kudos to everyone involved in that aspect. Like kudos to his wife, especially Mm. for looking after him. Uh, Kudos to the uh, fucking Barry and the lads for finding a way around it. And again, I suppose we'll get into when we talk about his performance, Mm. but kudos to the man himself. Oh, yeah. Patrick Troughton also returns. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first return of Patrick as the second Doctor, but it won't be the last. He will return again for the five Doctors and then the two Doctors. Mm-hmm. Doctor Tyler is played by Rex Robinson. This is the first of three Doctor Who acting credits for Rex. We'll see him again in The Monster of Peladon and The Hand of Fear, both of which were directed by Lenny, so mm-hmm. very much a Lenny favourite there. His non-who credits include Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, The Big Pull, Warship, Gems, Six Days of Justice, and Zedkars. Ding. Rex passed, <laughs> Rex passed away in 2015. Omega, I, I can't pronounce it that way. Omega mm-hmm. <laughs> is played by Stephen Thorne. This is the second of four Doctor Who appearances for Stephen. We proved he saw him as a Zal in The Demons, and we'll see him again in Frontier in Space. And the Hand of Fear. He's also done a number of contributions to audio stories. And his non-who credits include David Copperfield, Death of an Expert Witness, Maria Martin or Murder in Red Barn, Crossroads, and the TV movie version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he provided the voice of Aslan. That's kind of cool because I recently watched um, a bit of the Tom Baker episode of that series. <laughs> I make the Tom Baker episode of that series. Well, well, well like, yeah, because like Tom Baker's in the silver chair because it was a TV series of 
The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian and the Silver Chair, I think. Oh, and the Voyage mm. of the Dawn Treader. Yeah. Stephen passed away back in 2019. An interesting thing as well is that on the... So this season, season 10 is available in that Blu-ray collection set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have this series that runs on the Blu-rays called Behind the Sofa. Yeah. And for this episode, there were three people whose association with Doctor Who I've forgotten. Forgotten who they were in context. And I apologize to those people for not remembering context. Um, but then you also had John Levine, Katie Manning, and um, Richard Franklin. Hmm. His name was that way. And so they're watching it. Richard Franklin's like, I'm not in this, am I? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. Um, because the other thing is that th- this is the beginning of the phasing out of unit, really. Um, you know, because the doctor can go into space more, and this is kind of where it starts because he gets, you know, he gets that knowledge back, and the TARDIS is going to be fixed, and he's going to be yeah, because popping off more. Like we've got one, two, three. I think there's maybe like four or five unit stories left. Yeah. There's not as many as your brain maybe thinks there are because yeah. there's a lot of off-world stuff. Cause, yeah, because yeah, like, see, this is the thing. Like, while we may have appearances by the Brigadier or Benton, they're not technically unit stories. Yeah. So, we are now entering... Like, oh, fuck it we're, we're doing the character discussion I always like do I always like yeah, we're not which the Paul car- finds very funny by the way yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like do you remember like for a while there was like this fascination with like splitting the last two or the last movie of a series into two separate films yes I remember when Rogue One came out Stephen Colbert said I can't wait to watch Rogue One episode two uh, part three i I still like in my i'm going through a weird thing at the moment where i'm like documenting like because i have my doctor who list of like Mm -hmm. all the doctor who tv shows like tv episodes and books and whatever that i have and then i got the notion just to do it for all of my books and dvds and blu-rays as well i'm regretting the decision massively but i don't know (laughs) Um, and so I was trying to make sure that when I have series of movies mm. that they're listed in the list in order. So I put mm. like one dot space, two mm. dot space, it's like one dot alien, two dot aliens, mm. three dot alien cubed and whatever. So I was going down through Star Wars. I was like, one, the Phantom Menace. Two, Attack the Clones. Three, <laughs> <laughs> Revenge of the Sith. 3.9 Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> because it fits just like it fits perfectly. Like I don't own solo, so I don't have to worry about making that fit. But like mm. Rogue One has to come between the other two. Like it does, yeah. <laughs> it does. Anyway, so this yeah. is part three discussion part one yes. of the podcast <laughs> yes so where we discuss the the doctor or normally we discuss the doctor but we have three of them this time yep we didn't know when we were well off with one <laughs> <laughs> uh we have the companions this week are joe the brigadier benton and tyler mm-hmm. and then finally we have the villain of the piece which is omega mm-hmm. so 
uh, I kind of want to go first, just for the first Doctor, because this immediately popped into my head when I finished it. Yeah. I apologize to everyone as I say this. He's been gone for such a long time. <laughs> and hey, la, hey, la, Doc Bill is back. <laughs> I love him. Yes. So much. To be honest, I watched this because I got this box set when it came out. And it would have been, was it around Christmas last year? Yep. And I I did a little bit of sneaky watch through. Right. Mm. So I watched this. I watched the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I, I wanted to see them. Mm-hmm. But since then, and like we'd kind of pretty much gotten through most of Bill by that point, if not all of us. Uh we had. We had fin yeah. we, we finished him at Christmas. Yeah, so we we had finished Bill and I watched this straight away. Yeah. I think that was why I watched it, because we had just finished Bill and mm. I'd gotten it, so I watched Bill straight away. Having gone so long <laughs> without seeing him, yeah. I was so excited to watch this episode. Mm. Because I love him so much. And one of the things that I love is that, you know, we'll get to it when we talk about the second Doctor and the third Doctor, but there's a very sort of antagonistic you know, sibling rivalry one upmanship between two and three. Mm-hmm. But there's such a deferential way they both look to the first Doctor. Which is weird seeing so they're technically older than him. Yeah, like he's the youngest yeah. <laughs> of the three of them. But they just hold such... They just defer to him in such a way that I kind of like it because like you, know, you wonder how much of that was them writing in you know, just an overall deference to Bill. Mm. And then how much of it was just the doctors, you know, honoring the yeah. man who, who started it all, do you know, in that sense? Yeah, because like when he says, oh, so you're my replacements and you just see like there's a quick cut to the two of them and like Patrick is smiling away looking for like the nod of approval and so like John is like resolute and he just goes, a dandy and a clown. And you just see the two of them kind of look at each other. <laughs> Patrick looks so devastated. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... But like, well, oh. but like throughout the story, like they never bicker with him. No. There's none of that. It's very differential. I'm sure a lot of that was because they couldn't write that sort of back and forth with Bill not mm. actively being there. Yeah. But I just love how differential everyone is to that first incarnation. I think I think it's fantastic. And I think as Bill's last appearance, I think that's great. Yeah. And someone should have taken note. Of how people treat Bill. Mm-hmm. Because obviously the first Doctor makes another appearance again in the five Doctors. Yes. And no, I haven't watched that in a very, very long time. But there, I, I watched a fair few of his scenes from it. And now mm-hmm. I had said before that I thought like, um, David Bradley did a great version of William Hartnell in the docudrama. Mm-hmm. Not too gone on the performance in Twice Upon a Time. In terms of portraying the first Doctor, I would say I think that Richard Herndl, who does the first Doctor and Five mm. Doctors, actually gives a better portrayal of the character. Yeah. Be- and like, there's some really, really good moments in the Five Doctors with the first Doctor. So, yeah, I don't remember it that well either, but I do remember his performance was very good. Yeah, but no, definitely, this is how you. For for <laughs> for anyone that is taking over the reins and attempts to bring in the first doctor again, please do not make the same mistake that someone else made. Yes. Um. 
I agree with everything you're saying there uh, in terms of uh, Bill. And like again, I think it is. It cannot be understated enough just how good his performance is for his limitations. Oh yeah, he has not lost touch with the character one bit. It is like he has st- like the what is it? It's a seven year gap or yeah. a, a six year gap. Well, six, six and a bit, yeah, six and a bit year gap, and it's like he had never left the role. He slots yeah. back into it perfectly. The mannerisms are there. The like, there's the bit there where he goes, like you know, like uh, he goes, "It's a time bridge." Now, what's a bridge for? A, eh? and they go crossing exactly. Now, quit dilly dallying and cross it. Like that. That's <laughs> it's, oh, it's so, so good. It's so dark. But this, this is why I love is that like while they were obviously incredibly limited in what yeah. they could do with Bill, mm. everything what they did with him was perfectly in character. Mm-hmm. Like that way of sort of guiding you to the right place yeah. and then say off you fucking go you fucking mm. idiot but also taking all the credit at the end oh absolutely yeah you know it's like now you know it was you know, naturally without me as I, I, oh, I, I would have been I, lost or yeah I, I, I shudder to think what the future will hold or something like that and it's like but you could totally like that is totally something he would have said to Ian and Barbara yeah, or like, even to to Stephen mm-hmm. and like to, to anyone do you know um, it's so it's so Doc Bill and as well like when he says like it's time to go back to the their own time streams he goes now now you you and I young man to the second doctor just, yeah. who's technically again older <laughs> but he just looks younger um, no like to to Bob and to David like they they wrote they wrote a great script for him for his limitations yeah. and he fucking knocked the hell out of the role like, yeah and like he, I said in the last episode, you can kind of see him looking off to the side. Yeah, and the squint. And every now and again, the squint. Stuff. But it doesn't take... For, like I, I just noticed it because I'm like, well, he was looking straight forward for most of it. Now he's looking off that. But if you imagine the position that he's in, like, he's in some sort of he says vessel he, of, of some sort. So he's trapped in a time eddy. And what I can imagine is like it's almost like the... Um, Something from Superman, you know, the 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 Phantom Zone Cube or something like that. Yeah, that's essentially what he's kind of in, which is really yeah. just like I suppose like a chair in a studio. But like that's the thing, like you know, he's trapped in a time eddy and he's also trapped in the black hole. So obviously, yeah. true, I suppose, just serendipity. It feeds into the performance. Yeah. So like the fact that he's looking around. It, no. it kind of doesn't take from it that much. Like, no. It's probably because we've discussed him so much that I, I even noticed it, to be honest. Yeah. And like, um, all, all together, like, he's what, maybe six minutes of screen time in a, yeah. in about, yeah, in a hundred minute story. But it's, it's fucking brilliant. It's so it's good. It's fantastic. It's so good. Like, I, I remember the first time I heard about this story, um, I hadn't seen it, but I'd heard about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it was after watching The Five Doctors years ago. Mm-hmm. I looked into the other ones and I saw that the three doctors was a thing. And that, but that Bill, you know, hadn't been well. And so they just sort of like added him in or whatever. And I kind of thought, it was like, oh, she's just maybe been called the two doctors, you know, like he's not even really in it, but like it is definitely the three doctors. And the story couldn't happen mm-hmm. the way it does without all three of them. Like you couldn't take. Doc Bill out of it hmm. and still have the story that we got. I don't think. No, no, and like it's, yeah, it, it it's just he he brings just that lovely little mischievous flair to it. Despite the fact that he's not even being mischievous, he's just being himself. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 
I think I think we may have gushed. You know, we've gushed enough about. Yeah, we've gushed, yeah. gushed enough about the man. Uh, so how about we go on to the madness with a method behind it? Come <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, you go first. Okay. <laughs> it's true though, because like, it's like okay. First things first. I love the relationship between the two, between himself and Pertwee. It's yeah. like, oh, they play off each other so well. It's it's fantastic. Like, um, th- how they're trying to explain to Joe, and he's just like, you know, he's not one, you know, he's not one of them, is he? He goes, no, he's not one of them. He's one of me. And they're like, no, 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 no. I hate to be contrarian, but I must insist, he's one of me. And like Joe goes, like, we, and was it third doctor? Was like, he, oh, yeah. oh, I, I, I am he, and he is me. He's me, and we, and we, and we are all together. Gookie choose. That's a song by the Beatles. Oh, how does it go? And he starts to play it on the recorder, and it's just like, your man just wants to slap him. Um, He's like, I love his obsession with the recorder because it's like we've seen him play the recorder so many times, mm. and it's just it's such a perfect thing for his character. Um, I love, no, this is my own read into the situation, but the reason for like their uh slight and anta- uh, slight antagonism towards each other is that. Given how the second doctor was forced to regenerate, he views Pertwee as a usurper. Meanwhile, Pertwee views him as the fucking idiot who got him into this mess in the first place. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Despite the fact that you're the same fucking person. Um, but I, That's a good way of looking at it. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Way. That's a good way of looking at it. And like, he just roils him up so much. But... Um, and like I love seeing him fall back into the relationship with the brigadier and Benton. It's great. Um, I also like how he, you know, he's he's with Joe. He goes, "Now you see, Joe. I may call you Joe, mayn't I?" And yeah. It's, and it's, he's really sweet with her, which is great because it reminds yeah. you, it reminds you how he was with Victoria. Yeah, and like my thing with the second Doctor here is again, you know. I kind of ragged on the second doctor a lot when we were reviewing his stories. There were mm. several several did. moments with him that we I was very did. concerned about. Yeah, we both yeah, did. Yeah, we both did. And I'm so glad that the second doctor we get here is all the best bits. Yes, absolutely. There is none of the just random sexism. Mm. It's the, the one thing, though, that is very true to that second doctor. Mm is using people yeah so you know you had a big a big thing with the second doctor using people and getting angry over things like that and like mm-hmm. not telling the whole truth and we see it here with the second doctor where he flips the coin yes and doesn't let him see what it was <laughs> yeah. and then later on when they're deciding who's gonna go to the singularity first to the singularity first the third doctor and he's like will we flip and like the third doctor's like he can't like, there's no point yeah knowing you're a fucking coward you'd make me go first anyway yeah um and i kind of like that because it kind of shows like the second doctor wasn't all sunshine and roses no he did have a darker side to him absolutely and whether and he was also the one that we said showed more emotion and more fear he he had moments Mm. of being genuinely very afraid oh yeah and so we kind of get to see that which i quite like it would have been very easy to just make him great but i like yeah. that they did give him a little bit of flaw in mm. there um also i did not know before watching the story that he was the one who started jelly babies 
Yeah, I forgot about that. I was more like I was more shocked by the fact that he wears a blue shirt. It's amazing what you look <laughs> like. <laughs> Because like obviously in black and white everything like anything Every, that, everything's gray yeah anything that isn't black like is like either gray. just just yeah it's just white God knows what it is um, but no I agree like that it it's all it is all the best bits but at the same time it's still staying true to the faults of the character yeah um, there's one thing that I might get to when I'm talking about the brig um, I love how excited he is to see the brigadier and how excited he is to see benton Mm -hmm. i don't like how the brig treated him though and i'll get to that more with the brig i think yeah but it was the one sort of it made sense Mm -hmm. and i understand it i just didn't particularly enjoy it yeah um part of his appearance was the brig being because the brig was kind of his companion in this story as such yeah um and I, I don't like how that played out for no. as for as long as it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, like I love the idea of like the brig saying like, "Oh, um, I said you were his assistant." <laughs> his what? <laughs> <laughs> I love that the brig is kind of like ah shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. It would be really hard to explain. Yeah. Oh, there's actually such great dialogue between. The, the, ver- the various versions of the doctor yeah. and he's just like you know your effectiveness is now doubled I think you mean halved more like <laughs> <laughs> <It's really laughs> oh. so speaking to the 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 lad the dandy we've had we've had the clown now let's go on to the dandy he's so defensive of his identity do you know what he reminds me of it's like when you bring a girlfriend back and she takes a look at your teenage photos for the very first time but they come to <laughs> life and he's like ah for fuck's sake <laughs> Yeah, like, he's so defensive that he... Uh, if you imagine, right, so this is the first time that this has been done on Doctor Who. It's obviously been done several times since then. Mm-hmm. This is the first time it was done. So if you put yourself in the Doctor's position, you are a person who, through natural causes or extreme situations, will eventually change your physical appearance and some of your mentalities and some of your mm-hmm. personas and stuff like that. Yeah. But what carries true is that you are you. Yeah. To suddenly have this other you, mm-hmm. this past you that you've grown beyond, suddenly there again, and you're like, no, this is my time to be me. Yeah. You had your time to be you. This is my time to be me. So I kind of understand him being defensive, but like oh, he's very yeah. defensive of it. <laughs> But the on the on the flip side of it, then when they actually work together, like after the three of them established a mental link, mm. and it's like you know it could work. It, yeah, like they're, like they're all kind of like, they yeah. both light up, and they both start getting to work. And it's I like seeing that as as fun as the bickering is between mm. uh, John and Patrick. I like seeing the 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 collaboration between the second and third doctors. Mm. But one thing I find interesting as well, like you're on that vein, is that like. You kind of get the sense that he sees himself as superior. Oh, completely. To the second doctor. Oh, completely. But then he still has that deferential thing to the first. With the first. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Doc Passer is stuck in the middle kind of going like, <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, like, it's like it's I, unloved middle child or something. You, you can just like imagine like you know the three of them all getting together and it's like he's quite the oaf, wouldn't you agree? And it's like going, I wouldn't fucking talk. <laughs> you can just imagine like the first doctor like saying that to him, just kind of subtly push him down. <laughs> um. Oh. 
but yeah, I think we have a lot of good third doctor here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's anything b- beyond seeing how he would react to his previous self. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's anything new here. There isn't. And like the one major point outside of, because see, a lot of it is him interacting with his previous self. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, obviously, look, not a bad thing. And we've said before, like, if the story is good, nothing new needs to come from the characters. Yeah. Okay. But the thing that, again, like the thing that kind of is true is the doctor's compassion. Yes. Well, you know, for the for the most part, like Sea Devils, we're looking at you. Mm. Um, like at the end, he laments that like he you know he struggles with the fact that in order for the universe to survive, one of his heroes had to die, and he had to be the one to do it. Yeah. In in a way, it's like I liken it to putting down like a rabid dog. In the sense of like you know if you're if you like you see if your pet gets rabies or something like that, yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's a threat, and yeah. you have to put it down. And that's the way I liken it, because even Joe says, "Well, it was him or the universe," and he's like, "I suppose you're right." Yeah, I I think that's the part of the third Doctor that really does shine through hmm. here, is that you know once he realizes who's causing it, yeah, a there's that little bit of like. I heard about you growing up. Yeah. Like, you're, oh my God, like you're, you're the guy, like, do you like, know? Like, he, like and there's is, such a great reverence there. He's the Zephram Cochrane of the, doc, yes. of Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there is a very understandable reverence. There's a very mm. understandable hero worship of a sense mm-hmm. in there. And yeah, I mean, his reaction at the end you know, the Sea Devils, like you said, is is the yeah is the hangout of you clearly don't give a shit yeah um but I like the fact that here we get the same reaction that we would have seen in Silurians of yeah there should have been a better way yeah because like like, like I at one point I was like will we even have a villain this week? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because like, Omega is a very interesting character to discuss. Yes. Yes, I was is. like, will we even have a villain? So, <laughs> but I, I like I liked that the whole thing that shines through. And also, I do like at the very end, he reassures Joe that he's not leaving just yet. Yeah. Be- yeah. Not like that time in the Cause of Axos where he was like, I could just go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or like you know, e- like even if we go back to like uh, Inferno, where he's yeah. like, you know, I should miss you, my dear, and all, like, but like I won't miss this pompous, you know. So, <laughs> um, so all three guys did a really good job, I think. Yes, they did, and I think it highlighted the best of all of them. Yeah, with still remaining true and not being like a complete whitewash. Yeah, like, it didn't. It do. That's the thing. It didn't sugarcoat any of them. No. Which is brilliant. And you it's one of those things, you know, what, what if? Like, mm. if if Bill had been better. Oh, that would have been so amazing. Like, like what, what, could, what could his story have? Like, I can imagine him, like, so the way that we had, say, obviously, yeah, the brig is mm. uh, Doc, Pat's uh, companion mm. for the story. I can imagine the first Doctor taking Joe under his wing. For yeah. A bit, for a bit, while maybe Tyler sticks with the third Doctor. Something yeah. like that. I can see that happening. Yeah, come with me, my child, type thing. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I also kind of want to see him with Benton. <laughs> oh. 
Yeah. I just, I just have him call him Chatterton or something like that. Yeah. Um, I also would have loved to have seen Doc Bill with Omega. Yes. And something like that type of an interaction kind of happens in the five doctors. Yeah. And oh, it would have been great because it would have been very akin to the first doctor and uh, Bennett from the rescue. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. So it would have been great. Yeah. Um, but alas, but like what we got, we loved. Yes, we did. So, on to the companions. Let's see if we love them. <laughs> so, first of all, we have Joe. Again, we get to see the intelligence that Joe hides. Yep, absolutely. Stop hiding your intelligence, Joe. Um, before before we get into that aspect of it, I will say that this is the, this 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 kind of the constant story that comes from me when I, when you hear the story for the dads and my early argument that Joe was that character mm. because she fucking fine in this story. I tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, just because of her clothing is, and that that's where I kind of got it from. But yeah, no, like as you say, like she's not dim by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I love her dedication to the doctor, even if it gets her in trouble. Mm-hmm. We've seen this from Joe over and over again. She will not let that man go anywhere on his own. No, nope. even if it gets in trouble. Um, I also love. I noticed this like on the antimatter planet. When they're running to Bessie, or when they're running back to the unit HQ, I love how one of the guys is always holding her hand. Just yeah. for what we know of Katie, Katie that's yeah. her like shocking vision. But it's also very sweet that one of them is always there mm. supporting her, mm-hmm. which I just think is very sweet. Absolutely, no, it is because again, it just really, it really drives home the point that the unit family is a real thing. And it's not just the unit family, it's Tyler as well. It naturally flows from whoever's nearest her at the yeah. time. <laughs> Which obviously is the actor's naturally yeah. flow. But like in the story, it flows really well. That mm-hmm. they all just, you know, keeping a hold of her or whatever. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I think was a little bit OTT. Mm-hmm. It's understandable in context, but it's a little bit OTT is the way she clings to the doctor before going through the mist. Yeah. Just the exclamation that she has, she sounds like a toddler. Yeah. Do you know, like, it sounds like, you know, when your child gets up from a nap and you have to go to the toilet and mm. they don't want you going anywhere. <laughs> Do you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> to put it in a very specific example. Yeah. Um, it's understandable in context. I just, that could have done with a second take, I think, mm. just to get the pitch of that down a little bit. No, yeah. You see, I, I suppose there's a lot going on in that scene that mm. I really enjoy. And yeah. I think my enjoyment of that scene probably made me not pay attention to that aspect of it. Yeah, it's, it's just that <laughs> it hit me and I was like, okay, fine. Like, it's understandable in context. I just think it could have been toned down just a smidge. Mm. And like, it is great as well like that she cares for the second Doctor just as much as she cares for the third Doctor. Yeah, and I love that she sort of plays Mother Hen. Yeah. Um, when the first Doctor isn't playing Mother Hen. Where she's like, will the two of you just stop? Because <laughs> like, you imagine like, she, she reveres the Doctor very much. She looks up to him, literally. And, mm. you know, in, in a metaphorical sense. Yes. Um, and I imagine seeing him being so very childish with mm. himself. Yeah. She's just like, 
who the fuck even are you, dude? Like, <laughs> God the fuck, like. Oh, but yeah. but I love that was her idea to to create the door. Yeah, that that's again, it's just. Uh, Joe's intelligence. She, again, that's the thing. The more she travels with the doctor, the more attuned she becomes to the science that goes on throughout mm. their throughout their adventures. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think, I think that's probably like the big difference between only having Liz for a year versus mm-hmm. this now being Joe's third season mm-hmm. is because and because she got to go off world and stuff. Mm-hmm is that she's becoming more attuned to the Doctor. Not so much the Doctor as a person, but to him. Yeah. Like, Liz, you know, obviously got to know the science behind him and, you know, that kind of thing. And she kind of knew his quirks and stuff. Hmm. But here we get to see that Joe really understands who the Doctor is. Hmm. Do you know? And can take what she knows about him and double it. Yeah. And apply it to well, there's two of you, so I'm get just, to it. Like I'm just thinking there, like that we probably haven't seen this much of a character of character progression since probably Jamie, because if you think back mm. to all the various companions, like Ian and Barbara and Susan, were like Ian was a scientist, yeah. and Barbara was a history teacher, and there yeah. was a, there was an understanding that one of them would always have for what, what was going on. Vicky, supremely intelligent child from the future. Stephen yep. had future knowledge and threw a fucking hissy fit when his future knowledge didn't apply. Um, Dodo wasn't there for very long enough. Mm-mm. Ben and Polly, I while they weren't there for an extended period of time. I don't I think w- they had a journey. I don't think they had a journey. No. Jamie, because he was there for like, what do we say, 20 of the 21 stories. Mm. He, well, not to the, like, he was able to like, you know, do certain things and work certain things. And then, like, obviously, Zoe came into the mix, and Zoe was like supercomputer human. Liz came in, and she's a very accomplished uh, doctor and scientist, through various many things. Mm-hmm. So then, in comes Joe, and we get to see Joe's character progression from the person that used the fire extinguisher because she's off fire, and then seems very, you know, moon-eyed. Mm-hmm. What now we're actually getting to see someone that's like, you know, oh, don't you mean this, or is that what you mean, type thing? Yeah, and like, I think. I think Jamie's probably the best example for her mm-hmm. because Ian and Barbara, while we love them forever, mm-hmm. don't really develop as people as much. No. And we said at the time, like who they are at the start and who they are at the end is still who they are as individuals. Yeah. If you compare Ian and Barbara in the Daleks to Ian and Barbara in the chase, there isn't really much of a difference. <laughs> Except Barbara picks up a stick and goes, pew, 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 pew. Yeah. Other than, <laughs> other than that, right? Other than that, there isn't really much of a difference between between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Jamie, like you said, because he was with the Doctor for three years, you know, mm-hmm. looking at it, we saw his change over time. He became more comfortable with technology and so on. And I think with Joe, I like to think that a lot of this is Joe just coming out of her shell yeah do you know like she's you know she's an escapologist and she Mm. does all of these other like random things that she's interested in i think what she's doing is she's asserting the fact that she's a grown woman and not a child that that is the way that she was treated earlier on yeah and you know maybe she hid behind that childish Hmm. persona for a while do you know um maybe it's kind of like a protective thing for herself Hmm. 
Um, but we we have gotten to see, and like particularly um in the time monster that like she can take care of business by herself. Oh, absolutely. Do you Definitely. know the whole time round that we had last week? Like that was yeah, that was totally it. Um, but yeah, I think she did really well in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a whole lot for her in terms of progression, but this is something no. for the characters as a whole. Yeah, this wasn't about them. No, it wasn't. It was the, <laughs> that that it, wasn't the point of the story. It, like, it, it was the event. And it was, yeah. So, the Brigadier. I love the Brigadier mm-hmm. in everything. Mm-hmm. However, I'll be the first to admit, he was a bit of a dick. Yeah, Jesus Christ, dude. For take, a lot of this. <laughs> take, take a fucking chill pill. Like, I know your base is under attack, but my fucking God. you. I would argue you've nearly experienced worse. Yeah, like, the way, like... The first part, he's so... <laughs> it's kind of so funny. When the, when he first meets the second Doctor, he's so like, oh, thank God, it's him back again. Mm-hmm. Not the one I've had to fucking deal with for the last <laughs> three years. <laughs> it's you back. Yeah. But, like, the fact that he... Like, the brig is not that bullheaded. No. Do you know? It, it wouldn't have taken him that long to cop on to what was really happening. And the fact that he's like, you know, Oh, so this is what you're doing in here. This is what you're spending unit funds on. Like, he knows the TARDIS is bigger on the inside because he's seen the console outside of the TARDIS before. Yeah. Like, th- there's a few things there where I'm like, ye, ye needed a foil, and I get mm. that. But, like, I think they held on to it for a little bit too long. He, yeah, like, it's... I'm like, man, with everything you've seen, everything you've seen, you should surely, like, you know have some suspension of disbelief now at this stage. Yeah, and like what I don't like about it is that it kind of tarnishes his relationship with the second Doctor because they had a Mm. really good Mm -hmm. friendly, jovial relationship in both of the stories that they were in before. And here he's treating the second Doctor as if he's the third Doctor. And I don't like that. No, and also he's very reactionary and he takes a lot of it out on Benton. Yeah, like Ben is like a punching bag for him, and I yeah. don't, I don't like that. I really no. don't. It's probably like the one, the one big negative, and like it doesn't last for the entire story. Do you know? Like he's fine in episode one hmm. for the most part. I think it's episodes two and three. Yeah, where they just have him being bullheaded for long. But then you get to episode four. Too much. I think it's when he meets up with Alice. Yeah, he takes charge of Alice. <laughs> Um, but like he really sort of he is still that man that we know and love leading from the front taking Mm -hmm. charge great dedicate like i love the fact that like when the tardis when he gets locked in the tardis he's like i need to help my men like that's all he cares about Mm. is contacting his men and making sure they're okay so like they do still have the the good bits about the brigadier that i love um and how sweet he was like being the last to leave to give his salute and mm. all that kind of stuff, which is it's very him. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. He just stands there resolutely and just mm. Dr. Tyler, Mr. Alice, mm. Benton. He calls her Joe. Yeah. That that was that wrong true to me straight away. And I'm like, okay, you were a dick for like two episodes. I love you again. It's just, it's, it was so sweet. Hmm. And you kind of imagine that, like, when Joe steps through and then the Brigadier goes up the steps and he turns around and he gives the salute, 
I sort of imagine it in a way of him sort of being like, I'll take care of her for you mm-hmm. type thing. Yeah. Do you know? Even though, like, earlier on in the episode, he had had the, like, you know, I don't know about you, Dr. Tyler, but you two are still members of UNIT. Yeah. <laughs> like, a joke kind of tries to stand to attention. <laughs> her huge fuck me boots, like, yeah. is... Oh, God. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, it was just like that when he said Joe, and I was like, oh, it's so subtle, but it means so much. Yeah. Like, he. Did he call Liz Liz? No. I don't no, think it was I don't, always. I don't think he ever called her Liz. Michelle. Yeah, I think it was always Michelle. Hmm. So, yeah, for him to call. Which was never. Which I never took as a direct. Like, it was always a sort of. It was inappropriate to call her by her first name type thing, <laughs> which I could, which I considered the same with Joe. Like he, he'd probably see it as inappropriate for him to call her Joe in day to day life, mm. um, because of his position in the hierarchy or whatever. But it, it's just so see that she doesn't, he doesn't force her. He just holds out his hand to her and yeah. holds her hand. Going, I'm like, oh, that's so. If he wasn't an asshole for two episodes. I would say that like it's one of my like it is probably one of my favorite moments of his. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's just so well done, and Nick just played it so subtly as well. Hmm. You know, it's it's so good. And then of course he has his his comments at the end. One wonderful chap, both of them. Yeah, which is just phenomenal. Like it is. And then we have his right hand man. Mm-hmm. You're a good man, Benton. Even when your superior acts like a dick, you remain calm and resolute and do what you need to get the job done. Yeah. Also, military commander Benton. Yeah, I like Leading it. Leading from the front there, learning from the best. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Running around, like, yeah, this thing. He runs around the entire complex and he fucking uh, sets up the positions and he fucking, he's stuck in, like, again. And because, like, he's not even wearing his combat fatigues. He's wearing no. his... Um, it's not his dress uniform, but like he's office uniform essentially. Yeah. Um. So like, uh, but like a uniform aside, and how good he looks in the uniform. Um, he does look very good in the uniform. This this is a great Benton story because when he works into the ta- when he walks into the TARDIS, he's just like all over the place. His interaction with seeing the second Doctor again was brilliant. Um, his report like just like he's trying to uh ap- apologize for the brigadier's attitude by saying oh he's very stressed <laughs> <laughs> i love it it's like it's like he's taking his dad somewhere yeah and he's like oh. there's also another thing right i don't know whether you noticed it right but at the very end when he's saying about the thing you're know, like oh well, sir like if something is lost oh, where we say it's gone you know that he's got, it's like he's looking off it's like he's looking off into the distance because I have this thing is that if he tried to look at Nick, he would burst his ass laughing. <laughs> oh yeah, like I mean, it plays off as Benton going, "Don't make eye contact. Yeah, don't, don't make, make eye, eye contact. contact. Just ask the question. Hmm. Don't make eye contact. It was a bad question. I shouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> Just and moving I, on. Yeah, but like I, from, from John's perspective, it was clearly, yeah, don't make eye contact. Yeah. Don't make eye contact, or you'll bust your ass laughing. And Nick's thing was like, "Come along, Benton." <laughs> um, no, I want. To know if you got this read on us the same way that I did, okay? Mm. So, we said Tyra goes first, then Alice, and then Benton. Mm. But Benton 
Benton stops and says, so I think Miss Grant should go first. Mm. What was your view on that? I would consider that Benton trying, Benton trying to be like the Brigadier. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything about this. And it might be unstable. And if it fails, Joe should get back. Which mm-hmm. is the way I write Razor from the Brigadier. Cool. Everyone, save everyone else first. All right. Cool. And I would see it as that way. Why did you pick it up differently? I picked it up in the sense of not in a sort of like, you know, oh, women first, but a sort of Joe cannot go last because she will not leave him. Yeah, I, I can see that too. Yeah. Like, I kind of saw it on two ways. Like, I saw it on the, you know, military goes last, mm-hmm. civilians go first. Yeah. There's that. Because obviously, Alice was the first to yeah. be sent, even though mm-hmm. he didn't go and was tired of the one first. Um, but also, what if something goes wrong mm. and they need us? Like, is he, yeah, because like, again, like, yeah, there is the military aspect of like, you know, c- civilians out first. But I just had this thing of like that, Joe's not going to leave him. So the sooner mm. Joe goes, the less difficult it will be to get her out as such. Yeah, I, I think it could be either or, or a yeah. combination of those two things. I, mm. I do kind of like the idea of him trying to, him learning from the brig. Oh, and de- the brig always insisting that civilians will go de- first, and de- that you definitely. know he's yeah. the last man. Yeah. Um, but I can totally see it from that perspective yeah. as well. Like given the fact that she was clinging mm-hmm. to him, like so, I think for me it would be emotional emotional priority first, then the military priority, mm. and then the military side of things. But mm. you, it it works either way. Like, but, yeah. yeah. And the thing is, I kind of imagine as well, like when the brig was like you're bent and. Hop yeah. it like yeah, I kind of imagine that the brick kind of wanted to give Joe a moment mm-hmm. to say goodbye. Yeah, do you know in privacy without everyone looking at her? <laughs> do you know? Um, mm-hmm. which is sweet. I think I think both characters played that particular scene very well. Yeah. Um, and obviously Benton is very supportive of Joe when they get back to the lab, and Joe has a little cry over the fact that. Yeah, the doctor didn't come back. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love Benton in this. I mm-hmm. think, yeah, you know, we're talking about character progression. In terms of Joe, Benton has also grown a lot as a character. Oh, hugely! And absolutely, I think the Benton we see here is very is a perfect continuation of the Benton we saw in the Time Monster, where mm-hmm. he was kind of understanding in a layman's way what was happening. You know, and here he's sort of taking everything in stride, accepting what's being presented to him. You're trying to help in whatever way he can, and it, it it's sort of it's the nice foil to the brig who's so set in his ways that like unless he was there when the two doctors appeared, mm-hmm. he wasn't. It was going to take a lot for to convince him otherwise. Yeah, and like, you I know, think, and that's the reason like I. I love I, I love Benton is because like out of the three unit guys mm. himself and the the brig have like the the most par- character they're the most they are the characters yeah whereas Yates just feels tacked on yeah and I'll discuss Yates a little bit in my overall actually mm. okay. when we get to it so we move on to Tyler <laughs> you mean the kid in the candy store <laughs> that yes. is Tyler <sighs> like. I think his main purpose is to serve as like the doubting Thomas who sees the miracle at the end. Mm. But 
I do like how he doesn't consider the doctor to be a crackpot. Nope. You know, and I I do like how he doesn't consider Joe to be an assistant. No. He treats them both very well. I think the only I think the one I think A he's a very good scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, who clearly is just dedicated like the bit where the brig is sort of looking at him kind of going I fucking beg your pardon, like, yeah. make yourself at home, why don't you? Mm. <laughs> type thing is brilliant. Yeah. Liberty Hall, Dr. Tyler, Liberty Hall. Um, but, you know, he's a good scientist, but I think the one thing, and the story did need it, and he is the perfect character to do it, mm. is it did need that little bit of internal antagonism of, well, fuck you, I'm off. Yeah. You know, they didn't do it for very long, but I think had everyone been playing happy, happy the whole time, it would have mm. been a bit unrealistic. He, so to have him kind of be like, you know, we need to escape. Like, mm. you know, this is ridiculous. Like, it's A, very real. Mm. And B, I think you needed. I think if he had just gotten along with the third Doctor, I don't think the character would have come across as real as he did. Yeah, because like, <laughs> in a wibbly-wobbly, timely-wimey way, I... I would consider him to be like the Scarman character because yeah. as we said a few times before, we did Pyramids of Mars as a test run for mm. the podcast. We also uh, both love Pyramids of Mars. Yeah, we also love both Pyramids of Mars. And again, thanks for Norm and John for helping us out with it. Um, so I like that's the type of character that I consider him to be. He's like the Scarman character who's like oh, like he's really he's the scientist. He yeah. wants to know, know more, but at the same time he can be seen as a small bit of a roadblock to the yeah i mean the thing with tyler and with scarman as well and we'll get to him again in in a while is he's a scientist for the love of science Mm -hmm. he's not a mad scientist no he's not there's no personal glory in there it's none of that it's science for the sake of science but he's also a real dude who's like they're weird blobby things Mm -hmm. who potentially want to kill us can we go now? Like, and Scarman has similar, you know, human responses. And even to a more current time, and I cannot wait to discuss him when the time comes around. Professor Jericho from the latest stories. Jericho from the latest story, or even um, from the Yeti. Oh, tra- Travers. Um, Travers. 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 Travers yeah. again would be a, a similar yeah. character to that in, in my mind. Yeah. Um, all around good scientists, and again, I love the fact that. You know, reaching out to take care of Joe. Very nice. And he's just a kid in a candy store. Do you mm-hmm. know? Like, when he goes inside the TARDIS, he's kind of like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, you know he's a pure scientist as well because he's not freaking out to his new location. He's working out the mathematical equations as to how he yeah. got there and exists in an antimatter universe. Yeah. So, speaking of the person that brought all these characters together in a fashion... Yeah. The villain of the piece. Omega. And I, I would say villain with an asterisk. Yeah, I feel so sorry for him. Mm. Like his screams of despair. Mm. A little OTT. Just a smidgen. Maybe could have done with a second pass over that. But you feel it. Mm. Do you know? This is a guy who, from what we're told, like it's not like he was exiled. No. Do you know? It's not like they um, punished him hmm. for anything. He just got left behind. They, they, they thought he had died. 
Yeah, was a, and they, they, they couldn't find any trace of him. They assumed he was dead. Yeah, so like he got left behind. And all that's kept him and I love it. I love this about character. All that's kept him alive is sheer force of will. Hmm. And I love the fact that they took that idea and just like the planet is there by his sheer force of will. Mm-hmm. He's one of the most powerful beings we've come across mm-hmm. when you think about it in that respect. Oh yeah. Um as like he's drawing in power to escape from this hell that he's been in for mm. thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And you're like, do you know, I don't blame you. I really don't. And like the fact that it took him so long to get someone in to help him. And at that point, it's too late. Yeah. And like, just like, I only, only really just thought of it right there now, but given the time of year that this is set, right? Hmm. It's like it. It's not beyond the realms of fucking metaphor for like guys in Vietnam, or like, yeah. or any like guys that were left behind and were prisoners of, or you know kept in fucking camp, prisoner camps for mm. years, and assumed they had just been forgotten by yeah. their government and all this type of stuff. And it's like they go back and when they do, if they're lucky enough to go back to society, you know, they're treated like. Some people treat him as heroes, other people treat him like dirt. It's a really weird fucking thing. But yeah. here, but this is the, like, he bent all this to his will, but his isolation has made him insane. Oh, yeah. And, like, Stephen Thorne, I said that Azal was a great character because, you know, mm. just like his presence, his voice, the whole lot. Now, the scream, I liked it. I didn't think it was that over the top, to be honest. I, it's I, a little OTT. Hmm. I think I think maybe a second pass, a second take may have been helpful. Probably, but but it hit the note it needed to hit, though, in yes, terms no, of emotionally. Definitely, definitely. And Stephen Thorne does something that I I believe very few people can actually do, which is when they're wearing a mask to act through the mask to actually make you see the emotions on this yeah. thing. Um, I Tom Hardy has done it in stuff like uh, The Dark Knight Rises and Dunkirk. Uh, Carl Urban has done it in Dread, but the, for the full effect, uh, you'd have to give it to Hugo Weaving and in V for Vendetta. Uh, v for Vendetta. But also, I think James Purefoy was small bit because he was the original body for it. Um, but yeah, no, it's a very tough thing to pull off acting through a mask, and Stephen Torn does it wonderfully because yeah, you can like see, it's it's so good. You can see the, the full spectrum of emotions. Because like at uh, there's points where he's very magnanimous. He's like brother, mm-hmm. time lords, welcome, you know, and you know you you'll stay here with me forever type thing. Um, or then like he's he's rage and his fury and the the mental battle and it's done amazingly. Mm. The uh, mental battle was weird. It really was. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't expected it to be a a wrestling battle. match. Yeah, a, like a really slow motion wrestling match. With like uh, him having a weird Darth Vader face. Yeah. And still better than the Gorn fight. Absolutely way better than the Gorn <laughs> fight. Um, but no, he he played off uh, John and Patrick amazingly. Yeah. Like, and I do like the fact that Patrick stood up for him in terms of like, the camera positioning because mm. this, like, Omega's a great villain. He's fantastic. And it, his, his mask thing is really cool. Oh, it's so it's a wonderful thing. 
wonderful. It, it, it's like some of the masks that we've seen on the show, oh, they've been hit or miss. Hmm. That one's really good. It re- to it the really point works. where, like, I mean, obviously he can see out, but I imagine they put black over the eyes. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think there's, um, I think at one point you might be able to see his eye when they're putting the, the helmet back on him after the CS. Yeah, I think you can see it there, but like. Yeah, it's just black mesh. You would never, the reveal that he's gone. Hmm. It's the first time you see that. Yeah. You're like, holy shit. Yeah. And it does beg the question, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, the third doctor's compassion over what happened. Mm-hmm. And there should have been another way. Yeah. Was there another way? You know, you have here three powerful Time Lords. Mm-hmm. And this guy can bend reality, this reality to his will. Could they not will him a body for his consciousness to go into? If if Omega had been sane, then quite possibly there could have been a workaround. But he is starting off at the at the base fact that the Time Lords betrayed him. Mm. So it, it, Everything that they say that they can do to help him, he's not going to believe it. Well, the fact that he's like, "We'll give," they're like, "We'll give you your freedom." Yeah. I mean, they already showed that there will that they can impact the you know reality mm. here as well. Mm. I just wonder, like, they they kind of leave it open to that. Like, he can create anything. Mm. Could the three of them together? Have created oh, a body. Absolutely, quite possibly. But as I said, like he's starting off with the base fact that he was betrayed. He has grown insane over time, and he is just his despair is probably so much for him that he can't think logically, mm. which is a very understandable mindset for a character in this scenario. Yeah, I'm just surprised neither of the other two brought it up. Maybe they just felt like that they couldn't get through to him. But again, I think it's. You would, yeah. You'd love to have seen the first Doctor there, yeah. Because two it seems to have reverence for him, but mm. seems to be operating on kind of I suppose my mindset, which is like that he's too far gone to save. Yeah. Whereas three is well, like if we try hard enough, we can save him. What mm. would have one's bit of perspective on the whole scenario been? Yeah. But do. <sighs> Omega is such a fascinating character that I really hope he's not gone fully. No. Because he he does he is a representative of one thing that I love in Doctor Who. That's it's that. when the when the doctor gets wins the day through sheer fucking luck. Yeah. Uh, it, no, okay, seeing the doctor intelligent and MacGyvering his way out of stuff is great. But what adds a real punch to Doctor Who is the luck factor. We had it all the way back in the Web Planet with mm. the Animus when the do- they just luckily Ian gets through and managed to fucking lob the mm. the MacGuffin at the Animus. But it's it's pure luck. We mentioned Pyramids of Mars. Luck will come into the factor there. Luck mm. is it really helps make, get across the villain that the, the villain is ter- a terrifying entity. Yeah. No, I, I think. And the luck factor here is high. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the first time I watched this, which would have been a year ago-ish mm-hmm. now, 
I was like, the recorder's going to do something. Yeah. Because they mentioned it so much. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, it is sort of the Chekhov's recorder in that, in that context. I'll buy you ten recorders, a hundred, a thousand. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think that kind of makes sense as well. That like, this is going somewhere. Without all three of them together, yeah, the other two had to rely on luck. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but like, like, you never know. Like maybe if the first one had been there, it could have just come down to fucking luck and again. And oh yeah, I, I'm I'm just like this. Yeah. Um, Fangirling over Bill a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, what a what a great character. Yeah, Omega is one of those characters where I'm like, okay, this is a villain that a you feel something for. Hmm. Like you said, I completely understand you not like being like, is he a villain? Hmm. Um, he definitely is, but you know, yeah, wouldn't have always been. And you, you kind of want, like, I want to see his story. Hmm. Because you know? I, I made an analogy last week about the Master and the Doctor being like Professor X and Magneto. Hmm. I would argue that Omega is more of a Magneto than the Master is because yeah. of the fact of, like, with Magneto's motivations for how he grew to hate humanity. Like, I mean, for fuck's sake, he's a Holocaust survivor. Hmm. And when he finally found happiness, humans killed his wife because he was other, you yeah. know? Yeah. So yeah like with omega it's like his actions are very understandable from the situation that he's coming from mm. very much so. like more so than i think any villain we've had to date mm-hmm. i'm trying to think of another villain that we've had that was as relatable or as understandable as omega and i'm drawing a blank i'm kind of drawing a blank as well because that's not to say they weren't there i can't no. think of them yeah <laughs> absolutely Absolutely. So, here here we are again at the overall section where Trish and I will each give our scores out of five. So, would you like to go first? I will. I loved it. I loved it. Now, I have a question for you, okay? Yeah. Did you love the story as a whole, or did you just love the fact that we had Bill back? Okay, so. This story started out at a five, because Bill was in it. Right. It was theirs to lose. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It started at a Mm 5.0, because it had Bill. Okay. Right? It was theirs to lose from that point onwards. Yeah. Uh, but no, I actually really did love the story. I think mm-hmm. it was a fantastic use of the past doctors mm-hmm. in a way that makes sense for how they would interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love seeing Bill again. And mm-hmm. I'm actually really sad. This is the last time we're going to be talking about Bill Hartnell because mm-hmm. I really like, and it's through the podcast and through watching the episode and discussing the characters. I love his doctor. I love the portrayal that Bill brought to the character. We'll see the first Doctor again, but we're not going to see Bill. Mm. And like for me, this I think this story is going to hold a special place in my heart because of that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the story as a whole, though, it was fantastic use of all three Doctors, mm-hmm. each playing to their strengths, each showing the best of that Doctor while not shying away from the bad parts of them either. No. Um, the villain was very interesting. Like, mm-hmm. if we compare him to the master, 
Mm-hmm. Right. The master nine times out of ten has to has this convoluted scheme to have another species help him get power and often ends up needing the doctor to help him hmm. to run his scheme which is like, so fucking weird and here we have another time lord mm-hmm. who doesn't need anybody else hmm. his plan was to drain the time lords of their power which he was doing mm-hmm. and kind of to find a friend which what? he also did. You know, he finds mm. someone to either replace him or to stay there with him. Yeah, because like, that was the whole thing was that he said um, he compared himself to Atlas holding yeah. up the world. So a yeah. ti- another Time Lord would have to take his place. Yeah, which I find it interesting that he mentioned Atlas because mm. he spoke Kronos mm. last week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that like that, like that, if you compare the two characters, the Master is great. Yeah. I think Omega is a more compelling villain. Hmm. At least in this one story. Yeah. Um, then the master has been up to now. Hmm. Um yeah, the brig was a bit of a dick for two episodes. But he still had some fantastic moments. Hmm. That moment when they're saying I, I I will like that is one of my favourite Nicholas Courtney moments. Mm-hmm. Um good use of characters. Mm-hmm. This is kind of going back to the earlier. I'm kind of glad Jamie wasn't there. I'm glad Zoe wasn't there. And I'm really glad Yates wasn't there. Hmm. Um, No offense to Richard Franklin as an actor. This is not a story that Yates would have fit nicely into. No. Yates's function within unit is... It's kind of hard to define because... Hmm. He's not the everyman that Benton is. No. Nor is he the stalwart leader that the Brig is. And we needed both of those in the story. Yes. Yates is this weird in-between that I don't think would have added any value. No. I... Had he been here. Like, if you'd taken out, I don't know, taken out Tyler and put in Yates, or taken out Ollis and put in Yates, I don't think his character would have added anything. Like, you couldn't just swap him out, like, swap Benton out for Yates. No. The, it wouldn't a, have worked. There's only one character that you can swap Yates out for, and that's Corporal Palmer, who's leading yeah. the unit troops outside after the base goes. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> I wouldn't, like, the only reason I'd like to see Jamie in this story is just so, like, the breaking gonna go, Doctor. McCrimmon. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> just, just that whole side of things. But, that would have been nice. Um, yeah. But only if, but it's a longer, only if it's a longer story. I think yeah. for, for what they did, four parts is perfect. Yeah, and that's the other thing, is that it doesn't overstay its welcome. No, it doesn't. You know, they could have very easily tried to go for the six-parter. You know, it's an event. Mm-hmm. Go for the six-parter, and they didn't. And I'm kind of glad they didn't. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, we've talked before about stories that don't waste an ounce of space. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of them. It yeah. is a story perfectly told in four parts. Mm-hmm. So it started with a five. And it ended with a five. Cool. Because even though the brig was a bit of a dick, mm. it wasn't enough for me to say, I'm knocking points off. Like, 
that was my that was my only complaint about the story as well. And like at one point, like my story was a four point five, right? Mm. Because I was like, it's just so it seems so out of fucking character. Like mm. it it just like he should not be this bullheaded. He should not be this reactionary. Not for this long. Yeah. But I think you know as and it stayed at four point five. But through our discussion in the character component side of things, I knocked it back up because I realized that I liked the positive sides of the brig more than I disliked the negative side of things. Mm. Um, so what did you knock it back up to? Let me finish. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, so, and this, but this thing, right? We were With this story, we were given something that we never knew could happen and that we, and we also never knew that we wanted. And I loved, I loved it. Each of the three doctors performed brilliantly, and as I said, my hat is off to everyone that got that helped Bill Hartnell give this performance. Yeah, because as you said, it's the last it's the last we could we we're going to see of him. And given his health at the time, it could have been bad. It could have been mm. a disaster. But my hat is off to the lads, and also his wife for fucking standing firm and saying no. If you want him in this, this is it, there's going to have to be major changes to the plan. Yeah. Uh, because like if if their relationship is anything to go by from the docudrama, mm. she was very supportive of him, mm. even though he could be very in his home life be very fucking curmudgeonly, but she's fucking stood by him and she stood up to him at times as well, mm. which is great. Um. So yeah, kudos to them. Uh, great performances by fucking all the cast as always mm. and Stephen Thorne who did a great job of bringing the expressionless Omega mm. to life um, yeah so like I, I've given this a 5 as well because I, I loved it and when I saw Bill come back into it like I remember my first experience with this story which is about 10 years ago mm and like prior to watching it i had seen the youtube clips of the first doctor mm. little did i realize that those clips were the extent of his impact on the story so at the time i was a bit disappointed mm. going through it go, watching it now after establishing my fondness of the first doctor and moving him up my rankings of the doctors mm. his contributions here are fucking spot on he nailed the role again after being gone for nearly six years and he just he just didn't miss a step and his last role i'm really really happy that his he did so well in his last role the role that he brought to life and made helped make a cultural phenomenon mm. so very yeah. much so so for a 10 for like the anniversary special it's for me it's a five out of five yeah so this would make John's one. Uh, just I think two, he's got the he's got the most agreed three, upon fives. Four, so he's he's on four five point Yeah, from both, both of us. Both of us. But see now, this also gives Patrick an extra five point It also gives Bill an extra five point and it gives Bill an extra five point oh. <laughs> so let's put Patrick on three, two, three. It was Enemy of the World the only one we gave him a five. No, before war games. war games. Before yeah. war games. Before right? before war games. Yeah. Okay, and it puts Bill on three as well. Three so as well. Puts, no, no, it puts him on four because we had Edge as uh, Edge, 
Aztecs, Aztecs Romans. Romans. Yeah. I know this. Yeah. I gave him a few more fives. I gave the rescue and the crusader five. Why, why didn't I give those? Um, I think because we said at the time that I think I gave it a small bit higher because of my love for that period in history. Oh, yeah. And I think with the rescue, I thought it was a perfectly paced two-parter to introduce someone new. Why did, but why did I give it 4.7? Um, my, my memory isn't as good as yours. Remember, remember my thoughts for me, Patty. <laughs> I think it might be virtue of the fact that it was the first story after Susan and there's not a whole... I, th- I think the focus on Susan's absence and the, of Vicky being welcomed in so much by Bill, I think... Oh, I think that may have rubbed me wrong. Yeah, it rubbed you wrong a small bit. Just because of how fast it seemed to happen. Oh, I think it was also I didn't like how Vicky treated Barbara. Yeah, or because of what happened with Sandy. Yeah. 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 She was trying to save your life, you ungrateful little shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, so, we have a we have another five on the table. Yeah, and opening the season with a five, you know, season ten, you've the got only, a lot to live up to. The only way is down. <laughs> <laughs> hey, currently, the season ten average is 5.0. Is it is theirs. To, like I said, I sat down to watch this last night, and I was like, it has Bill in it. Yeah. It's out of five. It's theirs to lose. Usually, <laughs> I go in with no score on that point. Last night, I'm doing with a five. So, cool. season 10, it's a five, and there's three. So, probably, what are we going to be talking about next week? So, next week, we are going to possibly one of your least favorite places in the world, a carnival. <laughs> um, we will be examining the Carnival of Monsters. Mm. <laughs> there better not be any clowns. I don't know. Okay. There's a familiar face, but I don't mm. think there's any clowns. Go cool. just remember your yeah your, your your team obligation to inform me in advance. Yeah, if there's, if there's, if there's going to be clowns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> might as well give you like a couple of years' notice. Greatest gal- greatest show of the galaxy, clowns galore. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, guys, talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.